Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. It is our September review show, which includes It Chapter 2, The Informer, Pain and Glory and Angel Has Fallen. Oh, bloody Gerard Butler. <laughs> we also have a new review feature this month from regular show contributor Darren, called Darren's Dash. And after that, Elijah returns and we discuss another screen classic. This month, The Lion in Winter. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Now, as we enter the month of Halloween, myself and my fellow team members will enter into the spirit of the season and pledge, pledge, <laughs> to watch a horror film a day a month throughout October. What team is this? Yeah, exactly. It's obviously not this one. No. Is this your imaginary you friends? Other, have you got other friends, Jeff? <laughs> Ah. Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. In response to Jeff's pledge, no, we bloody don't. Well, hi, my name is Neil and I just like films. Jeff, get your medication sorted before coming out more stupid comments like that. Neil, I think that silly statement from Jeff was planned to avoid talking about all the feedback we've been getting about his comments in the Actors of Our Generation and Foreign Language Film Show. Indeed, I'm pleased to say it hasn't been Jeff's finest month with our listeners. Hey, I didn't try and prorogue. <laughs> I have no idea what you mean. All the comments <laughs> I have seen look great. Let me give you some random examples from where I've seen Jeff's cinema knowledge is fantastic. Why isn't he on TV's Mastermind? Or this other one I've just found. New listener here. Just going over some of your back catalogue. Some of your old horror shows. Fantastic. Whoever put those shows together really knows this stuff. Oh, and finally, I've just found this one. Why does that character, Neil, constantly interrupt Jeff, who is clearly the star of the show? <laughs> These are the three imaginary friends you've got that are going to do horror films in October. Jeff. Let me explain in simple terms for you just how this works. People listen to the show, then they write in with their opinions. You writing them and passing them off as listener comments doesn't count. You forget, I review all the correspondence. I've never seen any of them. Let me guess, are they from Jeff Fan Club, or as I believe has a membership of one? Actually, Neil, it has a membership of two. Jeff and his evil twin. Hang on. No, no, you're right. It's just the one. Let's get back to reality and look at what has really been coming in, shall we? Starting with show 52, actors of our generation, a few listeners said that Jeff was too harsh on Ryan Gosling. Not harsh enough. And that is something we shall be coming back to in a future show with a podcast dedicated to the actor and his unbounded talent. However, at least four people were shocked Margot Robbie was not on the list. Yeah, it's considered, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, she was definitely considered. She almost was, until Jeff made a comment which I couldn't broadcast. All I said was... And that will once again be edited out. Thanks, Jeff. Apart from Jeff's colonial comments, the discussion prompted some interesting feedback. A couple of people asked why no Jennifer Lawrence or Scarlett Johansson. All I can say is they were considered. Regular listener Paul was very vocal on this subject. Although, Paul, I think you are trying to wind us up when you ask why no Rebel Wilson. Also, you are another person who has said why no Margot Robbie on the list, especially given her producing record. 
which includes films like I, Tonya. And again, I say she might have made it in, but for Jeff. I don't see how is an incorrect thing to say. Ah, more editing for me. Another interesting comment from Paul was, could Leonardo DiCaprio and Christian Bale, both on our list, swap roles? Leonardo DiCaprio as the machinist or Batman, what do you think? Yeah, I think they could both do that. Although I don't think Leo would have even allowed Terminator (laughs) Salvation to be made, let alone star in it. Not sure about Bale in Titanic, though. (laughs) Another thing Paul did say apart from saying Jonah Hill and Jesse Eisenberg should have been on the list, take umbrance certainly at Jonah Hill, was that he agreed with all of my comments on Ryan Gosling. If I was to quote Paul directly, and I'm sure it'll be beat, he has only one face as an actor, and that's a stupid f***ing smile. (laughs) Well, Paul, I am sure you cannot wait for our follow-up show on Ryan Gosling. Let's see how much Graham has to edit out of it. Ryan Gosling aside, Paul was right when he commented on my foreign language film podcast, Show 54. He said of you, I never realised Jeff took such a Trump-esque view on those annoying foreigners making films. It's like you built your own wall for foreign language films. How true, Paul. How true. And weekly, I try in vain to educate him. I am actually shocked by all of this. Okay, now there'll be another podcast coming on foreign language films. That'll teach all of you, and I include you, Paul, comparing me to Orange Man. (laughs) (laughs) As much fun as it is to listen to our listeners bashing Jeff, especially you, Paul, (laughs) I think we had better get on with the show. Let's play some music while we set up the review panel. Hi, Darren. Great to talk to you again. I see you've had a very busy film-going month. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. I've done quite well for myself this month, going for my uh, 100 films at the cinema Excellent. that I do every year, so yeah. Well, what I particularly like about it, it shut Neil up this month from saying he's watched more than everybody else. So um, <laughs> uh, thank you very much. You've saved my sanity. Okay, let's go to the first of our reviews then. Let's not mess about. The Informer. This is recording now and we'll be recording the whole time. Tazlo was a convicted felon. He is also an informant for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. You'll break your parole. Go back to prison. Anyone can get drugs inside. It's you. I want out. We go along with the general's plan. Evidence of fentanyl being methodically distributed inside a state prison buries the general for good. And if that happens, you're a free man. If you go back inside, you'll never get out. I'm here to investigate the death of somebody very close to me. We can't have this detective find out that an FBI informant was present during the murder of one of his own. You want to pitch your field office against the biggest police department in the world? You love us a good fight. What are you thinking? Burn him. He has a family. We looked him in the eyes. We made him guarantees. He's trying to come back home. I'm scared. I'm doing everything I can. I'm coming for payback. I'm coming for payback. I'm the hangman. And I just put a tight noose around your neck. I'm coming for payback. I'm not getting out of this. This ends now. Surprise. A 
tough crime thriller in which Joel Kinnaman stars as former soldier Pete Coslow, who has drifted into a life of crime as a drug runner. To get himself and his family out of this situation, he agrees to become an informer for the FBI. Their plan is to use Pete to bring down the leader of a tough Polish mob in New York City. However, when events go murderously wrong, Pete finds himself in a desperate predicament, with forces on all sides wanting him dead. Darren, over to you, and what did you think of it? I actually went into this with very little hope because I'd heard the reviews about it. And, and also, Joel Kinnaman isn't somebody who I'd see as a, like a really strong reading man. Oh, I'm um, with you but, on that one, Darren. Yeah, <laughs> I think everybody's yeah. got a, a point on that one, yeah. I actually did enjoy this film. It wasn't anything spectacular. It didn't sort of like, you know, break any ground or anything like that. But sat there for like an hour and a half. I, I was perfectly fine with this film. I really liked it. I liked the story. I like the fact that it moved, you know, at a really quick pace. And I like the predicaments that the guy basically sort of found himself in. He, he had the gangsters on one side. He had the FBI on the other. Both sides were basically as bad as each other and putting him in his worse and worse situation. And I really got in, invested into it. I, you know, I really cared about what happened to him. I cared about what happened to his family. I liked all different layers. I did find that I was actually overestimating the film at one point. The way it was going, I thought that he was going to outsmart everybody that he had sort of a plan in his mind and so he was going to be putting both sides against each other and will come out on top and that really didn't happen it just sort of everything basically went wrong in the end it just all went a bit sort of all all nuts basically with his with siege in the prison but i thought it was fine he did sort of have a plan though didn't he particularly at the end i mean he engineered and this is spoilers to anybody who hasn't seen the film but he engineered i thought a really clever way to get out of prison and sort out a corrupt guard yeah, I mean, I mean, some of that, when I was thinking about it, I thought some of that was him basically improvising. In the siege and everything, there was no way he could have like, orchestrated that's that. That's true, yeah. No, so that's so that he ended up in the thing. And, and also the ending, how he got out of the prison, seemed to be straight out of Silence of the Lambs. One, one thing as well I, I did really like about this film is I think a lot of these films always rest on having a, a bad guy who you absolutely really want to see get theirs and get killed. And this one had a few of them because it was the prison guard the corrupt prison guard who absolutely hated, but also the guy in the mob who was harassing his family. There was something about him that you just sort of have this like quality that you just really wanted to throttle the guy. To me, seeing him get his like come up and say, you know, I really like that part of it as well. Now, that's an interesting part because when you're introduced to that guy at the very beginning of the film, Kinnaman calls him his brother. And for a long time, I thought they were actual brothers. Yeah. And that threw me completely. Yeah, I also thought that the villains were better than the uh, the main man himself. My big problem with this film is it's really a TV movie, I felt. This would have worked better as a four or six part series yeah, four, on yeah, TV. Definitely, uh, definitely on TV. Um, Joel Kinnaman, I agree entirely on that. I thought Rosamund Pike stole every scene she was in. And really? the more, more she was in it, the better. I thought she was excellent. She was really, really manipulative. And then she sort of got to conscience towards the end. I thought that was done quite well. She looked to me like she was in it just for the money, picking Ooh, up the cash. Oh, that's a bit harsh. Bit no, harsh. I thought she got better at the end. Yeah, I thought the central character uh, was lacklustre. 
His performances were a bit flat. I thought his wife wasn't much better. I was actually rooting for the villains. I thought I thought yeah. they were good. The the main mob boss himself was really creepy looking, and I yeah. thought, oh, great villain! And then he just seemed to disappear. Yeah. Disappeared at, out, yeah. at the film, and it just became a bit of a silly sort of end. Let's go back and pick up that Rosamund Pike. Darren, what's your thoughts on her performance? I personally liked her. You know, and she because I thought she she was the one that was she was torn both sides. Mm. In that she started off, she was like you know the, the one manipulating him, but then when things like started to go pear shape, it was also tearing her apart. So she, I think, she had like a strong heart to the film. It, without her doing that, it would have been just like a straight laced FBI guys basically, where she brought I think just about a little bit of a, a conscience to the film. So it's set in New York, but it's filmed in Gloucester Prison. Yeah. I mean, how bizarre is that? I would ask, Darren, have you ever been to Gloucester Prison? But that could come <laughs> no, out very no, wrong don't. there. It's a tourist place now, <laughs> yeah, mate. Yeah, they, they do, do tourists, yeah. Yeah, it's an unremitting, grim prison. That totally went over my head. I just uh, figured it was some, like, um, they filming it at Alcatraz or some yeah. some sort of, like, you know, location in America. But, yeah, that's bizarre. <laughs> I've got to agree with everybody, and I think that part of the main problem for me is that Joel Kinnaman is just totally uncharismatic. I just didn't go with him. I know, Darren, you have a different view on that. But but for me, I, I just didn't root for him at all. I, I found him a real struggle. I think when we get into the second half of the film and it gets into the prison, it's sort of like it changes gear and steps up a bit there. And I, I did find the whole escape thing quite exciting. I do take your point on board about it, the Silence of the Lambs connections. I think that's fair. But I still found that reasonably exciting and I, I quite like the ending. You know, it is one of those things, four or five part episode on TV yeah. would have been better. What did you think of the black detective? I thought he was really good. I liked yes. him. Common. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually like that subplot. It brought something different in, in it, but also the fact that he was basically risking blowing the whole thing up. Yeah. You know, he sort he he was added an, another element of basically that was sending everything like you know going the wrong way, but also the fact that he turned out to be a strongest ally. I always like that rivalry with the the FBI and the, and the regular police. Yes, that crops up in a lot a lot of films. I don't know if you ever saw a film called um, Homicide many many years ago, but there's a really big thing of that. You get who's in that, Dan? It's a, it's a David Mamet film, and it's got okay. the. Um, it's got uh, Joe Montanga in it yeah. and William H. William H. Mason many, yeah. many, many years ago. Big yeah, Bing Rames is in it or, or, as well. So but, that, yeah, it's, that, is a real, that is a really good film too, uh, to, from, from the early 90s. Yeah, as I say, 91, so, 92. And it's that sort of thing that there's always this rival, you know, people in law enforcement generally hate the FBI. That was something that I really liked in that film, that sort of that rivalry. So, yeah, you know, I, I, I thought Common did, a, you know, that was an important element to the film. Yeah, and I, I like that. I mean, he played that really, really well because he said at one point, he says, yeah, I'm a, a senior detective in the largest police force in the world. We like a challenge, you know. In, in other words, saying, I'll be back. I'll find out what's going on here and I don't like it. And I thought that subplot really needed to be expanded a bit more. So an interesting choice for all four of us to have seen, the only one of the month. Shall we, after that, move on to the next one? Wall Street guys. You see what they did to this country? They stole from everybody. Hardworking people lost everything. And not one of these douchebags went to jail. 
The game is rigged, and it does not reward people who play by the rules. But it's like robbing a bank, except you get the keys. Are you in? I got a fuck. I need a These are my coworkers. Jobs, please. What if somebody calls the cops? And says what? Woo! I spent $5,000 at a strip club, send help. Ah, damn. Uh, We're a family now. Damn, a family with money. Damn. And when would you say that things got out of control? So the guy went back three more times. Guess he must have liked it. I was born to flex. Diamonds on my neck. I like boarding jets. I like more than sex. But nothing in this world. I like more than sex. We didn't do anything wrong. You know, Tony wouldn't let this happen. I'm gonna text him. Who gave her her phone back? The next film is Hustlers, a crime drama based on an incredible true story, again set in New York City, where a group of strippers decide to get even with the high-powered Wall Street types who treat them like dirt. They put in place an elaborate scam, which would be unbelievable if it wasn't true. Neil. Did these ladies of the night scam you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I must admit, I slightly confused before I went to see it. I mean, it was J-Lo and strippers and it had good reviews. And I missed but it. it. And was, you missed it. But yeah. it was a blast. A real wild ride, if you can excuse the expression. It rattled along. J-Lo was very good. I haven't, so, see, I haven't did, seen her in anything as good no. as this Constance, in years. Constance Wu, who was in Crazy Relations, was, yeah, excellent. And the story, the true story, was engaging. It was after the crash. The bankers got away with it, and this is why they're scamming them. So you kind of root for the girls. Ultimately, all of them are just lonely. And that really quite sort of hit me hard at the end. Yeah. It was... Really interesting end to a crime movie. There were clues through the film. The strippers are happier in the dressing room, the the Christmas they all had together. It was a story of money, sex and women and a really good version of a well-worn trope. In the male-controlled Wall Street, it was easy to root for the girls, the bankers who should be in jail, get fleeced by the strippers when they can still afford it. J-Lo is scary in places and good cast. Lifted by J-Lo, which is a huge surprise. There's a phrase you don't and, hear. <laughs> and, a, and a good story. So you liked it. Darren? I liked it, yeah. I loved this movie. <laughs> I, 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 thought it, I thought it was great. I don't think I've watched like um, a caper movie where I was rooting so much for the people pulling off the, the scam uh, because it, it did a really good job of basically showing you why these ladies were, were doing what they were doing. It shows you in the strip club the fact that the money that they make on the tips and the things they have to go through to make this and then that gets fleeced off them because the, yeah. uh, the managers take their cut. Because when the Wall Street crash hits, their sort of business goes down, but the club goes goes down. It becomes more of a brothel type thing. And yet the people in charge, they're still making their money. And you understand why they're doing what, what they're doing. The people that they're, um, they're ripping off, actually, a lot of them, they, they can afford it. And you, one of the things that I, I was really touched by the film was the sense of family. J-Lo, she, she was very much like a mother figure. And, yeah. and there was like this family bit behind the scenes and, and everything. And there was this moment 
where uh, Destiny, the constant war char- uh, character, where she was in the club and the club had basically gone downhill and she'd not seen J-Lo for ages. And she comes into the club and the look that they give each other, it like gave me goosebumps because mm. you, you just saw how relieved they were to, to just just to see each other and reconnect. And I just thought that was wonderful. But yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. I, I thought it was really colourful. Let's face it, it, it was really sexy without being massively exploitative. I thought it was really ex- exciting thing, but all, all the time through it, you knew that basically they were going to come a cropper. You know, yeah. there were good. You know, something mm. was going to come on. It was all going to get you know blown up. But yeah, I, I thought this film was absolutely wonderful. And, and Jennifer Lopez. I mean, people are, are talking about possibly Oscar nominations for it. Yeah. And you know, I've heard the that. Studio, I, I would imagine the studio because we'll we'll get behind her and sort of you know give her the, the push sort of thing with all the media she's getting. But yeah, I, I thought this was absolutely a revelation. When when I first saw trailers for this film, I thought it was just going to be like sort of like a, a light sort of you know fluff comedy. But I, I thought this was great. I got to agree with everything. I thought wonderful performances and an interesting story. I you said family. I I thought it was sisterhood. You know, yeah. a story that that asks the question: Who are the victims? You know, is this a victimless crime because these people were scumbags anyway, and they were just take, fleecing their corporate cards on them? I thought the director created a very well crafted story about strippers exploiting their clients and getting off the pole and making their own money. You know, I, I just loved it. I <laughs> Getting off the pole. I didn't know any other no, way to put that. No, no, no. That's no, still, not like a, a it's still not a good or, way. No, no. Do you mean a, like a pole or an Eastern European <laughs> Oh, very funny. Right. Um, Constance Wu, Jennifer Lopez and Julia Stiles were all great. It was also interesting to see the rap singer Cardi B, in which I think this is her first role. Didn't see enough of her to tell if this is where she's going for the rest of her career, but I thought she was quite funny, very tough, very hard, you know, standing up to the club owners and just telling them how it was. I thought she was good. And the one image that will stick with me from this movie was just the sheer decadence of the Wall Street bankers who caused the crash and the way they just saw women as another commodity that they could just trade. It was just disgusting. And the only problem is that they weren't bright enough to cover their tracks. And they were they were just ordinary. They were throwing money people. around themselves, then, yeah. weren't they? And as Darren said, the, the Christmas scene was fabulous, and I thought that that was the the high point of it. And Especially it with Constance just, Wu's mother, who just Constance got, got into the spirit of <laughs> yes. the thing. Absolutely <laughs> yeah. priceless. She was brilliant. Question for you, Darren. I haven't seen this film as yet, and I'm looking forward to it more so now, listening to you guys chat about it. But does it fit from everything you've said into the? big short Wolf of Wall Street genre type of film or is it more an Ocean's 8 type of film? Far more fun. It does have a little bit of the, um, of the big short idea. Does it have like the, the fourth wall breaking sort of thing? It is a more sort of straight, straightforward. Um, I would say sort of probably a, a little bit in between because it, it is a really fun movie. You know, there are some really, you know, really funny moments and, and it is sort of like, you know, really entertaining seeing the Wall Street people get bears and some of the scenarios that um, that keep cropping up and that. So it, it is like a traditional sort of narrative of, of someone being interviewed and telling their story. I'm more fascinated than ever now. So three thumbs up from you guys then. Yep, mm. definitely, definitely. Okay, well, hustlers on my list. Who'd have thought that one?
And the next film is Angel Has Fallen, which Neil and Jeff have seen. Right. The final part, hopefully, of the Gerard Butler Has Fallen trilogy has fallen just like your career, Gerard. Anyway, the actor returns as tough Secret Service agent Mike Banning. After the treatment he received in the first two films, Banning is starting to show serious signs of ill health, which he is trying to hide. However, when new President Trumbull, Morgan Freeman, is almost killed in an assassination attempt, Mike is framed as the attempted killer and has to go on the run to try and prove his innocence. Although I am a massive Gerard Butler fan, Jeff wrote this, obviously, not me, I didn't, unfortunately, get to see this one. Jeff, is it as good as the other two films in this excellent series, Said No One Ever? <laughs> uh, no, you just did, Graham. No. Yeah, and I can understand uh, that. And uh, I, I am. It's not quite as good. <laughs> um, it's not quite as good. No, no, no I think... Uh, Olympus Has Fallen is really good, but I love <laughs> London Has Fallen because I loved uh, the way they wasted those terrorists. And, he, you know, that line where he says, I'm going to send you back to Afghanistan, I thought was just amazing. But this one is is much more generic. Gerard Butler is doing less and less action in his films. I saw in Hunter Killer last year, he was very much on the sideline where other people were doing it. And it's pretty much the same in this one. It is mainly a by-the-numbers effort, but a superior by-the-numbers effort. It doesn't help that the director, Rick Roman War, struggles with action sequences. Since we've had the Bourne films, we've got all these people who think, we can do these cutaway action shots, you know, where they just show a little bit and you fill in the rest in your mind. No, it takes a skilled professional to do that. And I'm afraid Mr. War is not a skilled professional. That's a bit of a disappointment. But what I would say about this film is Nick Nolte effortlessly steals it. He is wonderful. And I'll pass over to Neil at this point because I I don't want to hog the whole thing because (laughs) Neil clearly is going to give his praise of Mr Butler. I'll come back in to continue my praise in a moment. I have to say I haven't seen the first two, but um, I've read a lot of reviews of it, and they are and they were great. Quite, they're definitely xenophobic. The baddies are from was it Afghanistan? Was it and no. middle? Well, it's Middle East and Middle um, East in the second one. London has fallen when they try the, to take our streets. And in the first one, they were from... the Russians. uh, No, it was North Korea. It is is worth seeing these films before you You could almost consider it a right-wing propaganda. The third one at least goes for a sort of central internal affairs type thing. I wasn't expecting much because the bar was set so low. It wasn't all bad. It wasn't good either. It's formulaic. There's explosions in everywhere instead of intelligent plots. There's no real meaning. There's it has so many plot holes. One Nick, plot hole, no, please. But it's worth watching for Nick Nolte alone. Uh, Jared Butler is too much of him. Far too much. His American accent really started grating. He doesn't put on an American accent, but you don't Mor- need to, do you? Morgan Freeman is underused, unfortunately. Uh, you wanted to know a plot hole. For example, he's, Gerald Butler's character has a, a head injuries and is starting to feel ill, and he very obviously is ill. And he has the test and for his own doctor, but they don't test him as part of his standard secret service 
stuff. Physical so review. He just goes, oh, uh, the president, uh, Morgan Freeman, says, oh, I trust you. And you just think, no. he One, he shouldn't have said, he was, shouldn't have blagged it if he was really committed to the job, and two, he wouldn't have got that far anyway. So, I disagree, yeah. but okay. Anyway, it's, it's a kind of guilty pleasure in in that it's, a, you know, the Nick Nolte bit, and that kind of, that bit really starts getting uh, getting interesting. But unfortunately, isn't there at the first act in the sort of disappears a little towards the end. So, yeah, it's not one I'll watch again. Yeah, I, I like the whole trilogy, to be honest. I would agree with you, Nick Nolte. They go to London to destroy a bridge. Did they destroy a bridge in London? They destroyed numerous oh, bridges in a, London. There's a. They did. They went to London to destroy the leaders of the free world. Of course they did. Unfortunately, Boris Johnson wasn't elected there. <laughs> they have to of, be cu- quick, weren't they? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very good. Um, but a couple of other things I think that were good. I thought Danny Houston, who from the first scene you know he's the bad guy, so they're not giving anything away. But I thought his death scene in his fight with Gerard Butler was quite impressive. I thought it it captured a nuance that these sort of films don't normally do. You know, when you're fighting the bad guy, it's as brutal as they can be. But this is low-key. And the moment that Butler won, this guy accepted it and just sat down to die talking to him. And I thought that was just something a little bit different for this type of film. Because, of course, he's still... Wanted for murder. The president is still dying. All no, sorts the of president is not dying on. at that and he point. Spends Excuse five me. minutes waiting for this guy Excuse to me. die. Excuse me. Go on. The president had been freed by that point because Gerard Butler had saved the day. But let's talk about that president, who, being played by Morgan Freeman, of course, is a black president. And the whole twist of the film is there's a coup going on from the white vice president who says at one point he wants to make America strong again. <laughs> and, and perhaps the most telling line in the film comes from Freeman when he says, it is our moments of struggle which define us. And, and surely that's a quote for our age. So I think, you know, as a film, it does reflect where we are in society and where we are in the world. And possibly this is one of the most important films of the year. <laughs> of course it is, Jeff. Sorry, you almost said all of that without a smile on your face, and now you can't help it. But yeah, that theme has been done so often. The vice president is the baddie. Whoa, yeah. Good, did not see that one coming. Yeah. Well, I think you guessed when he said, "I want to make America strong again." Yeah. Anyway, I think we agree to differ on that one. Oh. God, yeah. And let's move on (laughs) to our next film. Okay, let's move on. Next review, and I'm really looking forward to this one. Pain and Glory, Neil and Darren. The latest film from acclaimed Spanish director Pedro Almodovar, which was a contender for the Palme d'Or at the Shoes Cannes Film Festival. It didn't win. Antonio Banderas stars as film director... Salvador Malo, who is looking back at his life and the choices he's made. Neil, is this a reflection of where Almodovar is now 
And is it worth all the hype that's been surrounding it? For me, yes. It's the autobiography, pretty much, for uh, Almodovar. It centres on the choices he's made and what is basically what his future will be. It's uh, constantly complaining about pains and aches and he's got pills to to make him rattle. Written by and directed by Almodovar, Banderas is fantastic a very understated, reserved performance. It's deeply personal. It's a man facing up to death, pretty much. Wow. It's witty, intelligent. It's about love, art, memory, his mother, and that's interesting, and his lovers. Somehow it doesn't get indulgent, which is good. I mean, a is good enough not to let it do that. And it just, I just sat back and listened, and it's, it's slow, it, slow burn and you just hear this whole sort of story and i thought it was fantastic it's everything revolves around banderas and his past catching up with him and what the hell's he's going to do next and how long he's going to live pretty much and then he finds a, a former best friend and also an actor in the but great film he made which they're still asking him about and then there's a play that he finds in a drawer and says, do you want to do this play? Um, I won't direct you, just do it as a one-man play. And then he's doing the play and someone in the audience hears it and thinks, I know who that is. And the play is basically called Addiction, which gives you an idea of the sort of um, state the guy's in. And all through his memories, there's flashbacks to his mother and uh, who's played by Penelope Cruz, a really well done. Uh, it's beautiful colours, it's warm and rich, and it's a great story. It has a sort of poetic feel to it. This was one of those films that I admired it, and I could see that it was great, and I think the performances were great and everything. Um, but it's not a film that I was enjoying when I was sat there watching it. When I sort of look back on, on the film and sort of think about it, I, I like it more. But I did find it really, really slow in places. Yeah. I have to say, it's a film that is really rewarded by sticking with it, though, because the film is explained by the very final shot. Yes. Because the very, how the film wow. ends. Which don't ever, don't, we don't, not going to mention. No, please but, don't. No, no, no. But no, the no, final no. shot, and you suddenly go, oh. oh it, it changes everything that yeah. you've been watching. And yeah, so so I don't want to you know spoil that because it is you know really worth that. Is it like a rosebud moment? I, I think it, it basically questions what you've actually been watching. Okay. Whereas rosebud twist kind of like explains what you've been watching. This one actually raises more questions. Oh what right, you've been okay. Yeah. So I think that's that's where it um, that's where it differs. But yeah, I mean, but there were a lot of things. There, was, there were scenes I liked, but, but there was a scene with the with the, with the, like a a question and answer session that I thought was really funny. <laughs> yes, um, was, it? there was there was some um, scenes that I found really really moving. I mean, you've mentioned that the scene when the uh, the guy realizes he's connected to this yes, play. Yes, that is you know, that and, is and so the, touching. You know, that, that that was really touching. And and Banderas sort of like you know, but there were some really nice moments in there. And it is a film that at some point I would like to watch again, knowing. What happened? Because I think if you actually watch it again, you, you'll sort of spot things that you would not have spotted the first time. And, and there's some little ideas that I have about the film that I sort of would like to see. The stuff I've read about it, but sort of I don't think that 
everything about it is you can get on just one viewing. So I think I think it is a sex, and I can understand why so many people have, have raved about it. It was just I just found it, you know, watching it was was quite slow. But I was sort of like, you know, I came away feeling better looking back on it than I did at actually at the time i think it helps if you've been in the if you're in the right mood for really for a slow burn movie it is uh, and it, some of it's quite hard it's quite hard to watch some of it um, yeah i mean yeah. there's a yeah there's a lot of sort of you know drug taking mm. in, 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 a, in a sort of like a, an abusive way yeah. As, as opposed to sort of like people getting high and enjoying themselves it is sort of like a, there's a real self-destruction yeah in there, which I, found, I think that might be one of the things that I did find some of that really difficult and, and quite mm. frustrating, you know, to watch. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy to watch. But, um, yeah, and then the ending. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the ending. I just great. burst yeah, out I mean, laughing. Just... I thought, <laughs> oh, God, what have they done to me? Yeah. So yes, and I think what one thing I, I will say that I felt a little bit frustrated for is because it's a, it's a film about a filmmaker, mm. and one of the things that one of the key elements in is that one of his films has been like rediscovered. This this like lost this lost film that he sort of made, and he's been like rediscovered and that. And I actually wanted more to do with that film. And yeah. I know that's not what the film was about, but as a thing, I wanted to know more about this film of, of his. It, it, the film wasn't really about that. It was more about his sort of like relationship and him trying to basically sort of reconnect with his past genius because he was basically sort of, you know, trying to, essentially he had writer's block for yeah. a lot of the film. And I think that was more what it was about. But there were a lot of things that he, I thought it was going in one direction and it didn't. So you know. it, it was something he was trying to avoid, but actually it was a catalyst for things that actually yeah. might be positive for him. Mm. And so it sort of switched its on it, switched it on its head. I thought I love the fact that your film nerd self came out <laughs> because you wanted to know more about the film inside the film. So that's, yes. that's, that's a typical <laughs> film nerd. What's going on in there? Yeah, I want to know more about that. We have no idea what the film was about, though. <laughs> Let's sum up on Pain and Glory, then. From the sound of it, I've got two different viewpoints, but you both like to see it again. Yes. Yes, I think so. I think there's more to it, and I think there is a lot in it, and knowing the ending, I think, uh, yeah, you've definitely got to see it again. Yeah, de- definitely. I um, mean, it it is um, worth seeing, and, and like I say, at some point I will um, probably wait till it comes on streaming or on. Um, I imagine this is a film that will come on film four at some time because it's fair sort of remake. But I will definitely watch it again because, like I say, there's a lot of things I'll be looking out for. Uh, mm. You know, and I'm sure that I'll get like you know a very different experience watching it a second time around. Definitely on my film list. Definitely gone on my watch list. Yeah. That was that. Let's move on to something more culturally significant. It Chapter 2. Something happens to you when you leave this town. The farther away, the hazier it all gets. But me, I never left. I remember all of it. For 27 years... Choice anymore. You lied. And I died. No! 
27 years after the events of part one, Pennywise returns to wreak havoc on the town of Derry. The Losers Club are all grown up, and including such actors as uh, Jessica Chastain, Bill Hader and James McAvoy, and have to return to face their childhood horror for one final battle. Darren, is this as scary as the first? And no, I'm not watching it to find out. I personally didn't think it was as scary as the first. In fact, I would go as far to say that I, for a horror movie, I didn't find it scary at all. And and I'm somebody that sort of, horror movies quite have their way with me, particularly for sort of like a tense build and everything. This one didn't. In many ways, it didn't really feel like a horror, to, horror movie to me at the time. It felt more like an action film dressed up as a bit of a horror for like a more mainstream audience that wasn't really into horror. As a horror, I, I wasn't scared by it, I mean, I'm sad to say. I have to say I did actually, this is going to sound strange, but a lot of what I say makes it sound like I didn't like the film. And I actually did. But I like the film because of the characters and because of the banter and the chemistry for them. I thought we did a great job of bringing in a cast who were, you could really see these as being the people who the kids from the first film grew up to be. I, I thought Bill Hader's was, was great as Richie. I, I thought the, uh, the one who uh, was Eddie as an adult was scary of how much he was like the kid. You <laughs> James, know, James it, Ransom. It, it, you could ima- you imagine that they basically went through a time machine or something and got those two t- together that it's actually the same person because they were so like each other. It was unbelievable. I like the sort of like, there's a scene where they all went for a meal together, which I absolutely love because they were sort of like, you know, you got them like all getting together, reminiscing and everything. The problem I had with this, with this film is, and I felt this when I found out what the concept was going to be, is if you read the book, yeah, it, I have, yeah, yeah. The most interesting scenes are to do with the kids. That's the best story. The, the adult story is more about them remembering the, the kids. The, the adults don't have a great deal to do. They gave him this like a MacGuffin type storyline, yeah, where they had to basically go and like find something from their past to bring together to put into this this spell that we're going to use to, to defeat it. That's quite interesting what you're saying. I was going to pick up on this. Is And you're quite right. The book is structured. The adults come back and remember as children. All their memories are gone. So we're learning the children's story as the adults learn it. Now, that narrative is gone because part one give you all the children's narrative. So they couldn't do it. So as Darren said, they create this MacGuffin. It lasts for about three quarters of an hour, and they, each one has to relive a childhood memory that you haven't seen in the first film. And it's that it's the film equivalent of the way the book is structured, and it annoyed the hell out of me because it went on for far too long. I found this quite repetitive. Yes. Because each one, they would basically go to, to somewhere in their past and then they'd sort of have an encounter with a facet of the eight, which would basically like run at them, like sort of really, you know, and like screaming and everything. And then they'd get it and then they'd um, like move on. I liked it for the characters and everything like that, but I felt that it just sort of, it felt we're struggling to find a story in it. It's sort of like, you know, to justify the sort of like making the film centered solely around the adults. I think you're right. I mean, my criticism of the first film was it was designed as a scare machine and a lot of the stuff in the book, and there's one sequence particularly in the book that I really love, which is where the children for the first time build that dam Uh, uh, and the policeman comes out and Richie starts mouthing off to him 
which is just a fantastic scene in the book. But it's also, you know, about growing up. It captures so much. Got rid of all of that just to make it this effective scare machine. Well, we've come back to part two, and they've added all this character stuff in, and now it just doesn't seem to work. Now, like you, I'm not knocking the film. I did get a great deal of enjoyment out of it, but it was far too long. I'll tell you what's really odd. What's really odd with this film is it tries to be so much like the book, and yet the best scene is not in the book. And it's the little girl going under the bleachers and seeing Pennywise there, and she's got a birthmark on her face. And this conversation between her and Pennywise as he tricks her into his lair, that had a, a power and a characterization that most of the rest of the film didn't have. I said that I wasn't scared by the film, but I think one of the most tense moments in that film was that scene. Hmm. And it was just sort of the fact that he was like sort of luring her in and he's sort of like, he's pretending to be upset because and tries to like connect with her by saying that he's, people think he's a freak and sort of, you know, sort of, so it gets, you know, because obviously she must have a sort of bit of a hard time because of the sort of mole that she's got. So he sort of drives her in and it's just a slow build. And there's also that one moment that was very much in the first film as well, where for a moment it just kind of goes blank. Yes. One of the things about it, if you read the book, is this idea that all these manifestations of the clown and everything, it's, they're almost like vessels. And yeah. it was almost as if for a moment is actually just empty. And and that that just is like really unnerving. So so yeah, that that scene I thought was was really good. One one of the things that I I felt was sort of missing that I was in the first one is part of the monster element of the first one is the fact that there's something sinister in the town that gets all the adults as well. So but so the kids aren't just like they're not just scared of of the creature itself, but their parents, the authority figures you know, the police and everything, all the adults, there's this like sort of spell that they're under. There's like a really weird sense of what's going on in this town. And that was sort of, because they're adults now, they've not got that threat to them. And I, I felt that was kind of another thing that was missing. When you come to the end of the film with the confrontation with Pennywise in his natural form, I thought that went wrong when they still kept Pennywise's head on the spider. Hmm. Yeah, And I can understand why they did it, because, you know, if you look back at the 1991, 92 TV version with Tim Curry, when it goes into that really toy spider thing at the end, it loses a lot. But I would have thought it, it would just been a little more in this one. It didn't need the face on it. it for me, that somehow detracted from it. It's, it's funny you mentioned the ending, actually, because there's a, there's a running gag throughout the, fi the film that the... Um... Oh God! The the, the the guy who grows up to be uh, Bill, because he, he grows up to be the author. That James he McAvoy. can't finish. Yeah, that he can't finish a novel. Yeah, and that keeps coming up. And that's it. Seems to be a, a an actual dig at um, like a self aware joke at Stephen King's expense. Yes, because that's always been a thing about Stephen King is that he can't finish. Well, his endings, so, yeah, are not, actually, his endings are not very good. And King enters yeah, into the I, joke, doesn't he? Because he turns up yeah. in the film and says the same thing. You don't know how to do endings in your book. Yeah, and I actually agree with that. I, actually, I, always, I always think that Stephen King is better works have the ones which aren't horror. I, th I think they're a bit a lot more solid. But but and anyway, yeah. So there's that joke in there, and yet I find it ironic because in this film itself, 
the ending to this isn't very good. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So it is if you're gonna do if you're gonna do a gag like that, maybe think we really need to nail this ending. And, and that, <laughs> I just I just found that a little ironic because the, the ending is quite you know, it, it, it comes across as like a, a um a Hollywood monster yeah. ending. No, that's and also that's... sort of how the how we actually be it in the end is kinda quite tame. No, I think that's fair, and I think that again goes back to the the previous version he did with Tim Curry. That ending was pretty lame as well. But you can't do the ending of the book because it goes on to different planes, different universes. In some way, it ties into the Dark Tower because it has a a twin or another brother in the, yeah. in the Dark Tower books. But I, what I would say in its defence, once that's out of the way, and you get to the part where their back as friends again i thought was really good i did miss though the whole subplot with james mcavoy's wife you know which is quite key yes. in the book and i would have thought and and the fact they chopped that out I, I, and i accept it's almost three hours long now and to my mind the bill character the mcavoy character was lessened as a result three actors come out this well for me bill hader james ranson and jessica chastain the rest I could take or leave. Do remember the uh, the subplot, the, uh, the the bill, and and that is sort of like because that makes the in in the book that makes the dynamic with him and uh, Jessica Chastain's character. It's it's sort of like it, it basically sort of gives an, another dump to the to that sort of love triangle going on, and also he basically gets sort of like a, you know he actually has a sort of an arc that comes to a conclusion when he's on the bike with her and everything. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, I, I can see exactly where you where you're coming from with that. Yeah, it's not bad. It is overlong, but yeah, I, I think on balance, part one was better. Definitely. I actually, just, just to catch up with it, I actually watched part one the night before I went to see part two. I definitely think the first one was, it was a much stronger movie. But it's, it's, just, it's just a good job that they had such a good cast that I think sort of, you know, they, they saved this, this one for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, Neil and Graham said they're going to watch part one with me, so we'll see where we get to with that and how that goes. You've got another friend called Neil, another one okay. called Graham. All right, all right. Moving on then from it, chapter two. Next film is Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. This is going to be reviewed by Jeff because he was the only one who was sat brave in the, enough sat in the dark who wasn't scared. Based on the series of horror books written by Alvin Schwartz in the 1980s, which was aimed at younger readers, frequently in trouble for its content. Although he didn't direct, Guillermo del Toro has written and produced this film, nostalgically set in 1968 and the four days between Halloween and Richard Nixon's victory in the presidential race. A group of teenagers hide out in supposedly haunted house where one finds a book of ghost stories. The problem is the stories written in the book have a nasty habit of becoming real. Nope, not watching this. Jeff, what did you think of it? Well, I actually thought it was really good. It's got a, a lot of mixed reviews, but I think it's on a par with Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because what you've got is a film that's looking back nostalgically at an age. It's got all the references there, that four days between Halloween and Nixon's election, that 68, that instant nostalgia to that sort of time period, although... In this country, we didn't celebrate Halloween like they did in America at that age. But but that whole point to it, I thought, was really good. And the way the characters interacted, it reminded me of such films 
which I'm sure you've all seen, Lady in White and Stand By Me. And no, it doesn't work at all. Does it really for you two? No. No. So... Although Stand By Me is on my list to watch. That is good. Lady in White is a fantastic ghost story by Robert DeLogger, who, and it's just stunning in in the way, again, it's um, it's set in the past. There's a mystery around this ghost story, but I digress. It's the same as this. What happens is that these teenagers get this book, and one girl in particular who, if you like, is like a female Stephen King, she opens the book, and ghost stories write themselves in this book. And as these stories write themselves, they start happening to people in the group or, or elsewhere. As is the case with the Spanish sensibility of horror films, which I really love, there's a whole thing about strong characters, looking at abuse, and how it echoes even in the supernatural. I think that's really sort of brought out in this film. Oh, hang on a minute. This actually sounds interesting. This oh, is no, not it, just a it, fright fest No, no, thing. not at all, because it uses tensions. There's two jump scares. Most of it is tension that builds up around you mm. and the stories. And you've got to bear in mind, although this is a 15 in the UK, it was a PG-13 in the States, the books are aimed at that 10 to 14 yep. age group. I would say... I think 15 is fair because some of the stories are a bit intense that that are going on around the main story. It is really, really well done. And I just, I mean, it's been a hit in the States. It hasn't been outside of America, but then they know the the subject matter. Great performances from the young cast. As I said, I, I think this is actually one of the best horror films of the year. I was surprised when I went to see it. I was instantly taken in with its nostalgia. It hooked me throughout. Some of the ghost stories could have been better, but on the whole, I loved it. And Del Toro, can you see his influence Absolutely. in it? Absolutely. A love of not only characters, but one of the things with Del Toro is a love of the monsters. Yeah. And you can also see the colour palette in there and the way it's done. Very rich, very golden, very autumnal in the way it does it. I would really recommend this. You guys would get a kick out of it. So, yeah, for me, okay. thumbs up. That's interesting. Not not what I'll I was expecting. List. Okay. Next up, which I'll review as well, is Crawl. Creature feature. A high concept film, which again, I won't be seeing. A Category 5 hurricane is about to hit Florida. The waters are already rising when Haley, Kaya Scolalarado, returns home to find out where her father is. She finds him in a partially waterlogged cellar along with a trapped alligator. Have you spent your whole month watching horror films, Jeff? Come on, this is another one. I'm building up to Halloween. Yes. Do you remember, we're doing it for charity, guys. In December, we're watching a f- horror film a day. Remember, you've all promised. Yeah, right. You yeah. know, those orphans need that money. <laughs> That's um, the worst guilt trip ever. It's a low-budget horror movie that does start with a lot of promise, that the setup of the storm, she goes in, the, you think there's one alligator, there's actually more than one as it develops along, and then it just gets silly. I mean, to be honest, she goes under the house. This cellar goes on for about half a mile, I reckon. <laughs> um, and then the other alligators come in, and then other people start appearing, and they're all eaten by these alligators, either inside the cellar or outside as they're trying to get out before it floods. So you know these two aren't, you know, her and her father, played by Barry Pepper, are just not going to, to get eaten. 
I think the two give good performances, but Alexandra Aja just lets it down again. I mean, he made the hills of eyes, and I just don't think he's that great a director, to be honest. Everything is a jump shock. We spoke earlier about scary stories to tell in the dark, where it's so subtly done and understated and knows how to, to time its scares. Everything here is a jump shock. So you get to the point where you think, I can't be asked. <laughs> you know, I know that at some point this alligator is going to leap out and it gets sillier and sillier and sillier. So they're trying to get out. And in fact, they try to get into the rest of the house. And at one point she traps this alligator, not small things, quite powerful, in a shower cubicle. Closes the door on it, <laughs> as you would. That would be fine, wouldn't it? Yeah, oh, yeah. that would be great. Two, two millimetres of plastic, that's going to trap any alligator. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's what you would call a jump in the shark or jump in the alligator moment. Oh. Yeah, it was cheaply done. It's made a lot of money. It just didn't work for me. Great setup, wrong director, and unfortunately spoils it. One Minute Reviews, where we catch up with films not on first run or on TV, and we give a short review. First film up, Holmes and Watson, oh, by reviewed by Jeff. Jeff decided to give the critically reviled Holmes and Watson, starring Will Ferrell and John C. Riley, a chance to see if it is as bad as people say. Phil Foster has already given a strong warning about this film in his review. Jeff, is it that bad? Do you know, Neil, in retrospect, Crawl isn't that bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> This is the winner of this year's Razzie for Worst Film, and it is shocking. I mean, it's that <laughs> bad. Before they released it, they tried to palm it to Netflix, and even they wouldn't buy it. And trust me, they bought some crap in the past. It's awful. Will Ferrell and John C. Riley as Holmes and Watson just do this endless parade of silly, improvised jokes that don't work. The only person that seems to try is Rob Brydon, and I think you look at him, he wishes he was in some other film. <laughs> Ralph Fiennes. You remember that? Remember Ralph, Ralph Fiennes? Fiennes? Yep. Won the Oscar and yep. everything for English Patient, and he was in Schindler's List. Yep. Yeah, and a Shakespearean yep. actor. And now, and I kid you not, his character is referred throughout in this film as a self-abuser. <laughs> yes, he's called a wanker constantly throughout the film. No. It's honestly shocking. There is one... Half funny sketch predicting the rise of Trump. Goes on a little bit, but it is amusing. But as for the rest, Conan Doyle would actually be spinning in his grave. Many years ago, I saw a film called The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother, yes. which was directed by Gene Wilder and starring Gene Wilder, and that was pretty terrible. That was but it's bad. a classic compared to this nonsense. I think let's move on. Actually, I'd but John rather... C. Riley is really good. He's yes. not really he's great. I mean, we've, actor. we've reviewed films recently where yeah. he has been. Yeah, the Sisters Absolutely Brothers. Absolutely Sister bro Sister Brothers. Yeah. Yeah, he was phenomenal. He in that. is a great actor. Why does he reason, do this? Will Ferrell brings out the absolute worst in him. Yeah, I just don't. Even... I mean, he, I mean, Will Ferrell was no is script. the common denominator in this, and he should be. Yeah, just just stick to Saturday Night Live. Yes. Yeah, it it is truly awful. Okay, that went well. Yep, yeah, and now over to Graham for Infernal Affairs. Following my wonderful pod short on foreign language films, either I say so myself, and their English language remakes, uh, Graham decided to check out a couple of my recommendations. First up, 
is the Chinese police thriller Infernal Affairs. What did you think, Graham? I loved it. I really, really loved it. I'd seen The Departed many years ago and, and enjoyed that, and I wanted to go back and have a look at the original source material. And then I realised, actually, as I was watching, I was thinking, this is more about Hong Kong and the people who inhabit Hong Kong and the mm. gangs and the police and the sort of the quality of the policing there and their commitment, you know, long-term commitment, 10 years this guy's undercover in one of these gangs. and. It just was really, really different from The Departed. Very, very small scale film, but brilliantly done. The plot's the same, but setting it in Hong Kong seems to give it a completely different dimension to The Departed, which was very much East Coast, Boston area. This is very, you know, small, set in Hong Kong, enclosed space. Quite claustrophobic and interesting. A lot of the most important scenes, they go up on the roof to do them mm. just to give you a bit of expanse bit of space, a bit yeah. of space instead of it, everything yeah. being down in the streets really really good excellent performances from everyone i just really enjoyed it it's a cracking good crime thriller and anybody who liked the debate should really go back and see this and the next film for review the predator reviewed by jeff well i went highbrow this month jeff continues to watch critically lambasted films this latest story about the predator had a very troubled production history jeff what went wrong so much graham i think when they did their test screenings nobody liked the final bit of the hybrid predators so they ditched all that to basically remaking the third act the original predator film i just don't know where this is going up i love the action scenes and they didn't hold back with the violence. I thought it was really good. The thing with The Predator, I'm not a great fan of the first one. I really like the second one. The, the gem of an idea of climate change encouraging these creatures to come more to Earth and to more into the bigger cities. And I thought, you know, you've got a creature that ties in with our own demise, if you like, yeah, the climate yeah. change. So I thought, that's a great idea. So what do they do? Dump all that and have Alien versus Predator. Now they've come back. They've tried to play on that a little bit more, but it falls short because any good idea, they just cut out. Didn't you like the Arnie, the original one? I thought the original one was brilliant. Okay when it got going, but the first part... The problem is the Predator is essentially alien on Earth, isn't yeah. it, really, if you play on that? So you've got this whole 45 minutes of build-up that isn't needed, I don't think. You could have cut that right down. Whereas in the second one, where it goes into Los Angeles mm. and the Los Angeles is impacted by climate change, it doesn't let up. You've got a great hero in Danny Glover thrown right into the middle of this. The plot twists and turns. And I thought that was tremendous. Nothing they've done in this with The Predator has come close to that since. And this is another attempt in it. I mean, I had high hopes. Shane Black, mm. who, of course, was the radio operator in the original Predator, also fantastic writer and director, did Iron Man 3. Nice guy, so he's got a really good filmography. he come into this. I mean, there, there were issues with one actor recast in the film that uh, Olivia Munn took exception to, quite rightly. All oh, of that had to go. I remember this. Yeah, yeah you remember oh, that? God, right, yes. So that had to go. They didn't like the third act, so that had to go. And then, as I said, they've recreated the original Predator in this final jungle battle. You can say about it, it's okay. You know, this ain't, you know, Holmes and Watson. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> what is? Yeah. 
but it could have been a lot better. So when it comes to Netflix, maybe in, in the evening, just watch it as a bit of fun? Yeah, absolutely. It's still scare Neil, though. Moving right. on. Moving on. Moving on. Returning to highbrow, Graham, you watched the Oscar-winning remake of Infernal Affairs, directed by Martin Scorsese and with an all-star cast. How does this compare to the original? I watched them two back-to-back just to do the comparison, and The Departed is every bit as good as I thought mm. it was. You know, it's Scorsese really just brilliantly put together and with a stellar cast. I mean, yeah, it's over long, I think. Could have done with, you know, 10 or 15 minutes cutting out of it, but they had so many people in it. It is packed compared to the stripped-down minimalist version of the Hong Kong film Infernal Affairs. Felt a little bit bloated, but I think with all that star power and Scorsese's direction, it was just brilliant to watch again. It's really, really good. But I still think you need to see Infernal Affairs just to get the same story but told from a very different angle. And finally, Dracula has risen from the grave, reviewer me. And finally back to Jeff for his 1968 Hammer horror film, which once again starred Christopher Lee as Dracula. As it says on the tin, he has indeed returned from the grave to suck the life out of anyone daft enough to watch this. Or have I got that wrong, Jeff? You've got it wrong. Why did you want to watch it? It's 1968 Hammer Horror. How scary can it be? Well, let's test it on Neil, shall we? (laughs) No, he's looking scared already. Let's not. I think I've seen this one. What, you watch ev- Hammer Horror movies? Everybody's yes. seen this. They're not scary these days. They're not scary. Well, they were, I, I can't imagine this being scary in its time, to be quite honest. What's, <laughs> what, what's interesting about this is... It used um, to be on in the after the get, come back from the pub. Yeah. Midnight movies. Yeah, that's right. On yeah. Saturday yeah. night. Movies, yeah. They used to show a Universal and a Hammer movie. Yeah. yeah. That's so, back in, like, that's 30, 30, 40 years ago now, but don't worry about it. When I was at college. <laughs> so Lee yeah, returns as Dracula, and one of the things with... The, the Hammer movies with Dracula is, is a nice consistency leading from one to another. You have original Dracula, taste the blood of Dracula, and then you come into this Dracula's just from the grave. Lee's great in it. Visually, it's stunning, but then it's directed by Freddie Francis, who's one of the great British cinematographers. He, for you want to check out his other work, check out his cinematography on something like The Elephant Man, which oh, wow. is just amazing. Okay. Right. Um, but it's one of the interesting things about Freddie Francis is when he wasn't doing cinematography for other people, he was directing these low-budget horror movies. And he had a whole career of it. The Skull with Peter Cushing is another example, Dr. Terrace House of Horrors, all work that he did. And visually, this is knockout. It's a widescreen print. It uses colour tints on occasion. The use of the colour red, if you see Francis Coppola's take on Dracula, the way the colours and the colour palette is in that, and compare it to this. I think Francis is is equal on that. That said, the story's shit. Um, (laughs) There's always that. There is always that. And there is an aspect that you will really like, Graham. The the, the hero of this film is an atheist. (laughs) And one of the things that Hammer has set up in this film is... When you stake Dracula, you have to pray. Because if you don't pray to God, he's not going to die. So, of course, this atheist can't do that. So when he's first staked, Dracula just takes the stake out and and goes on. But by the end, the atheist is converted and believes in God. Wow. So maybe this is something that is well worth checking out. So visually, it's great. 
narrative, I'm afraid it's really poor. So that's it from me. Films of the month time, guys. Neil, what's your film of the month? Hustlers. Just because you got one of those hookers to slap you down. Graham. Hustlers. (laughs) You want that same hooker, do you? (laughs) Well, well, as long as we she's, win again, she's J Lo. It'll be fine. Okay, for me, J Lo was good. Yeah, was scary great. things to see in the dark. That sounds interesting. I might yes, have, it does actually sound have to. Have a look I at might that. even watch it. Yeah, yeah, no, I think you. I think you'll like that. As promised in our introduction, we have a new feature this month: Darren's Dash. Darren sees a lot more films than us old folk, so he now has his own end-of-month slot to give us a quick roundup of what he has seen and what his thoughts are on each of them. Over to you. Okay, the first film I saw was a Jamaican movie called Sprinter. This one was basically about a young runner who becomes an overnight sensation on the track and he becomes a bit of a folk hero in his native country and basically gets the chance to go off to America and become a big star. I really like this movie. There was a lot of backstory in there. Some of it I like more than others. There's a plot that's going on where his brother, who was also a runner before him, is going to a life of crime. I found this really interesting. What I didn't think worked as well was a subplot with him and his uh, relationship with his father and his mother, who was estranged. I thought this just a bit too much sort of backstory going on for this. Some of the acting and some of it was probably sort of not the strongest. But I have to say the actual the sports scenes were actually really great. The races, they managed to do a really, really good job. They brought a lot of tension into there and you really did start rooting for this uh, young guy in there the runner himself was basically it was a, had a really likeable affable sense to him so you really sort of like was rooting for him and they also pitted him against a, a loud mouth american basically pretty much covered every single trope that you would get in a sports movie but i i personally liked it and i thought it was uh, you know like a really good movie the mustang now this was prison drama which centered around a prisoner called Roman who is violent, got a temper, is very reclusive, is trying to keep away from all the other prisoners and he gets entered into a prison program to train and tame wild horses to be sold at auction. Wow. And while the, while he's there, he comes across this horse which is basically pretty much everyone has given up on and has just basically treated as if it's totally untrainable it's this horse it's basically just no one can go near it it's a very violent horse and the kind of kinship develops between the two and he sort of takes it on himself to try and reach out to this horse and train it there's problems between them along the way it's like really such a nice bond uh, develops this like thing of respect the kind of thing it's a bit of a cliche to say but they kind of save each other a little bit it's a very bittersweet film there's still all the drama that's going on in the prison it gets mixed up in uh, drugs deals there's violence in there but it's a really good film bruce dern is in there which automatically makes any sort of small film but you know four times better he <laughs> plays the guy who's actually running the program and he's basically this old wizard veteran who's basically showing him how to um, train horses there's also this really 
distressing scene at the start that shows you sort of real life footage of how horses in the wild are actually captured and it's quite harrowing when you see, we see these horses like you know sort of running and being rounded up i thought this was a really really touching film made you sort of think about sort of like you know the rehabilitation of, of prisoners and everything but I, I thought yeah like i say i thought this was a really great film a real surprising only about 90 minutes long this was like a, one that really got you in the heart Wow, that's um, going on my list. Thank you. I'll put that on the list right now. Sounds like okay. my sort of movie. Downton Abbey. Oh, I God. Went to see Downton... <laughs> I went to see Downton Abbey. Now, I have to say, I have never watched an episode of Downton Abbey. I'm not really that much of a royalist, but I really found myself enjoying this movie. I found it really, really charming. Um, I like the fact in this day and age, this country still manages to make a piece of art that is basically accepted around the world. Because most of the people, I have to say, who actually love Downton Abbey are actually not from this country, but they're from America or Canada yeah. and everything. Yeah. But I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which, which probably says something about how we're seen as a, as a nation. I don't know. But I really enjoyed this. But the whole premise in this is it's basically all the characters from Downton Abbey, but there's a added epic storyline that the king and queen are coming to visit, which sends the whole staff sort of all going crazy and everyone's sort of like trying to basically put on the best show for them to, for the visit and everything. There was a lot of comedy in here. I actually found the, the story of the, the staff and the, the kitchens and the service and everything that was the one that made interesting me most because they get into a rival with the king and queen's entourage and they try to take over. So I actually found myself sort of rooting for them. I found it more interesting than the actual the whole storyline with the Toffs. You know, there was quite a few times when I rolled my eyes because they were sort of talking about how tough it was being at Downton Abbey and how they felt trapped by all this. And, and you know, it was like kind of, you know, boohoo rich people problems. But at the start, I could have done with maybe a little bit of a sort of like pointing out what the relationships were between, you know, it took me a while to figure out who was like the daughters and the grandparents and that sort of thing, what the relationships were. But generally speaking, I, I really enjoyed it. And the fact that I've not seen a TV show didn't stop me from enjoying it. It, it was a complete fantasy type story about sort of you know the class system and and some people may find it really really twee but i found it like really heartwarming and i really enjoyed it and maggie smith is she she's in it isn't she she's good she's wonderful in it the scenes that she has every time that she's on she has some, some sort of like one liner of some sort some sort of cutting remark or something there's this moment where um, she's arguing with somebody and somebody says to her there's, there's no need to um, argue she just says i don't argue I explain, which I, which, <laughs> which I thought was a wonderful line. But yes, I mean, I mean, Max Smith's pretty great anyway. Let's yeah, face she is it. brilliant. But yeah, but yeah, I I really enjoyed it, and and it is great to see a, a, an English cast that basically something that we're still sort of like you know producing things that people yeah. you know want to see outside of this country. On the same day, I went to see uh, Downton Abbey. I also saw a film called The Farewell which is a Chinese film. Now, this one really tugs on the heartstring, particularly if you've known anyone in this sort of situation, which I actually have. And the storyline is that there's a young girl called Billy. She basically grew up in the States. She finds her grandmother back in China has got cancer and she's going to pass away. But due to Chinese culture, they basically don't tell her that she's actually dying. Because the idea is that when people actually know they've got cancer and know that they're dying, that it was actually speeds up. The, the process as you will and from my experience this is something that 
kind of tugs on, on me because I actually have actually witnessed this myself. So the family orchestrate this fake wedding so that they all have an excuse to go to China as a family, so to meet up with her one last time. It's an incredibly moving story. You're seeing this whole situation through Billy's eyes and this sort of relationship with her and her grandmother is absolutely beautiful, but it's also quite heartbreaking. She knows her granny's dying and she can't say anything about it. It is a really, it really tugs on the heartstream. It's also quite funny in many places because the, um, the grandmother, she's got lots of spirit and she feels really, really healthy because she doesn't know that she's got cancer. There's lots of just sort of really funny moments with her. There's funny moments with the, the, a little bit of a fasting with the wedding and the fact that the sort of the two people pretending to get married and things like that. But this was a, a wonderful movie and it does tug on the heartstrings. Um, but it's quite, and even though the, the subject matter sounds quite heavy, it's actually quite an optimistic movie because to me watching it, it wasn't about someone dying. It was actually about someone living and giving them the sort of a quality of life right to the end. Because I saw it on a preview show and once it gets released, I think a lot of people are going to get a buzz about it. Um, the girl, is that Aquafina? Is that it's the yeah, Aquafina? She, she was in uh, Crazy Rich Asians. She was great she? in Crazy Rich Asians. And, and still, yeah, and still the movie in, in every scene that she was in, yeah. But this is a very different role for her. Whereas in Crazy Rich Asians, she was quite lively. Mm. And like, yeah. In this one, she's, she's, she's having difficulties of herself and obviously the relationship with her grandma is compounding this. But it is a wonderful movie. And it's also like, you know, raises the idea about, you know, what how you sort of treat someone passing away. I, I thought this was an absolutely wonderful, touching movie. Without going into too many details, I actually found it actually helped me with a few things. Yeah. Um, mm. so, but that's, so so yeah. I think it is a quite thoughtful movie. You've sold me on it, Darren. One last film to go, The Shiny Shrimps. Now, this one was an absolutely delightful film, a total surprise. It was only in cinemas for about one week here, so I was glad I caught it. It's basically a French movie. It's a sports film. And the story is that there's a professional swimmer who's gone through a loss of form. And when he's been interviewed after one of the races, he makes some homophobic comments. Now, this causes a scandal. And for him to sort of make amends and sort of has kind of like a punishment, he's tasked with training a gay water polo team who are basically going to be uh, the the gay games in um, Croatia. So you've got basically like this guy who basically has you know, homophobic sort of you know, things, having to basically train these gay team who are all, all very, very flamboyant. They're, all, they're also a complete underdogs. They're all really, really terrible at water polo. But it is a really, really funny film. It reminds me a bit of um, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. If you imagine that, all right. with sort of like a bit of a sports theme to it. I actually thought the film was so funny. Each member of this water polo seemed to be from a different part of the LGBT community. So you've got like different, so you've got sort of tensions between some of them. You've got a lot of biting, bitchy humour. And of course, these sort of the swim coaches sort of like, you know, sort of hating every moment of this. There's some really funny moments. There's one scene where they have to basically win a qualifying match to actually go to the games and they're taking on a lesbian team. It is so funny you know because the lesbian team are basically sort of like so much better than them and tougher it's it's got some really funny moments there's also a lot of backstory to all the characters 
some of it is a bit of a touch of a cliche where you're sort of like, he's teaching them how to be water polo, but as it goes on, they sort of teach him to be more accepting. So it's kind of like a bit of a cliche, but it's done with such a nice spirit that you're sort of like, you really buy into that. I really, really enjoyed this movie. Um, it had all the tropes of a, um, of a sports movie again, but it was just done so sort of well and just so sort of lighthearted and funny that you really got into it, but it was sort of like, you know, get, left you with a really big smile on your face. There's some really touching and sad moments in there along the way as well, but I absolutely love this film. Really give this for a film like this a chance, because it's a small low-budget film. This is one where you can make a real difference to a movie, by, you know, by supporting a film yeah. like this. I also have a prediction, and that at some point, I think this film will basically be made into an English-language version. And if they do that, I'm not saying that this would ever happen. The swimming coach, you would not find a better person than Jason Statham to play it. Because <laughs> there's just that sort of, bit of, for want of a better word, fish out of water and someone out of their element. That I think you could get a real lot of comedy. That's kind of my prediction that you will actually see this film made into an English version. Okay, it's recorded now, Darren. It's there for posterity. <laughs> um, well, thank you. Thank you for this month's Dash. So what is your film of the month? My, my film of the month is actually the one I've just spoken about. It's the Shiny Shrimps. Excellent. All right. Okay. Darren, thank you. Real pleasure. See you next month. Thank you. The subject of this month's rediscovering the classics with Elijah is the Oscar-winning tale of a corrupt dynasty that is The Lion in Winter. Jeff is the man who always wants to be king, especially a lion king. I pass over to you to introduce Elijah. Revisiting the classics with Elijah, The Lion in Winter, the 1968 Oscar-winning version, starring Catherine Hepburn and Peter O'Toole. It was a massive hit in its day, but does it stand up now? Let's find out. Hi, Elijah, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great. Welcome to the show, as always. I look forward to talking about this one. Do you think it holds up 50 years later? I think for the most part, it holds up brilliantly. It's gorgeous. The acting is all excellent. I think the only thing that seems a little weird is that it does feel like it's a play that was filmed. Very much so. Oh, God, yeah. Graham, I'll let you start. I didn't like it at all. I thought Catherine Hepburn was incredible. I thought she was excellent. I thought the rest of the cast were average, but I thought I was just watching a stage play. It had no cinematic moments in it. And there is one scene where they're all in the bedroom together, hiding behind curtains. And I thought, this is Shakespeare. Yeah, well, It's bedroom farce. It, it was yes, bedroom farce, But it's yeah. like um, in Hamlet when Polonius hides by... Is it Polonius? Yes, hides by... Whoever it is, they got killed. Yeah. They got yeah, killed, yeah, yeah, stabbed got through killed. the curtain. Yeah. By Mel Gibson. It was 
that. <laughs> <laughs> and that really, the whole thing and, and the wobbly swords got to me and the cheap props. Yeah, I just thought it was very, very stagey, very, very poor. And Catherine Hepburn just shines above everybody else. Yeah. The action scenes were cringeworthy. They were dreadful. Technically two. One, I think Graham's referring to, is on the beach. Well, that was bad, but it was the fight to get into the room in in the, the guards uh, killing of the guard the killing of the guard oh which the was one where he stabs shocking. into the chainmail like yes. the yeah. side of the head yeah and you can like totally tell yeah because they they shot it on the wrong side it was shockingly bad this is not a film at all this is a stage play and it would probably have been very good as a stage play and Anthony Hopkins is projecting his voice to the back of the theatre through the whole film and he yes. doesn't need to. We've got microphones. I think in its day, yes, fine. I'm erring towards Graham's view, but not quite. I thought it opened well. I thought Peter and O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn were really well together. They were just shouting at each other and there was some real funny moments, really, as they're bickering together. I know it's Anthony Hopkins, but I know. It's just when the kids turned up, I just thought, no, I don't really get this. As you say, the sets are just uh, and the, and trying to do action and it was just a bit cheap, really. As you say, it's a stage play and they didn't really move out of those areas. No. And when we got to that bit where in the bedroom scene where they're all behind curtains, I just thought all I could think of was a play that we went to see when I was like early teens. Um, it was called No Sex, Please, We're British, a very famous British play, British, British farce. farce. And I thought, that's that. And I completely and utterly lost interest. I did like the way that it moved around, especially with Catherine Hepburn and the bit where she suddenly realises she's lost when all her... Uh, machinations. Machinations <laughs> yes. and, and such like, and she's suddenly realised that she's lost. And I, yeah, you're right, Graham. She is very much the best thing in it. I'm going to side with Elijah. I think, for the most part, it holds up. It has problems. I think Anthony Harvey, world-famous editor, had moved into directing with a film called The Dutchman, which he made for £5. Got the gig because of two like that film and, and give him this. I think he struggles with it being staged. I, I think that's fair, but I think he added bits to it. I love, you know, in every sequence there are animals around the place, as they probably would have been, to show that we were, you know, as humans, we were just above the animals at that stage in our development. And that feeling about it, I thought, was quite good. I think there are problems, which we'll go on to talk about in a bit, but I think generally I was entertained. I can forgive the action scene on the beach, because I think it looked okay, but the getting into the door... You know, the editing on that sequence from a world-class editor that Anthony Harvey was, was very poor. I was, I just laughed. I mean, it looked like me and my brothers playing with sticks. It was great. Loved it. It was childish. It really was. It was, you know, here was meant to be two knights fighting each other or a knight and a guard. And the knight should have taken his head off, you know, but no, it was all slow and embarrassingly shot. It was shockingly bad. Okay, so we got differences of opinion here, but do you think, I mean, Elijah, I know you like that period in history anyway. Did that really work for you? That did. Films from that era look a lot more like what we believe the Middle Ages looked like than films set in the Middle Ages today. Now everything is grey, brown, drab, just kind of colourless. And back then, you know, people were dressing in all these gaudy colours. And you get to see a little bit of that in this film. And the straw on the floor, uh, I actually appreciated much of the set dressing. 
that's really interesting what you're saying because one thing that always stays with me watching this film is the scene when he wakes up in the morning and breaks the ice on the water yeah, to wash yeah. his face. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, that totally authentic. That's historical recreation. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. It did look exactly like it probably would in the Middle Ages. Then the king was a larger-than-life person and his wife was an extremely strong woman who'd fought against him the whole time, which is why he imprisoned her. It's been a number of years since I last watched this, but I think what was interesting, you know, this tale set in 1183, and we're watching it now very much in a post-Game of Thrones world, and Mm -hmm. that time period and particularly the French princes, as one of them played by Timothy Dalton in the film, had a big influence on George R.R. Martin when he was designing the whole Game of Thrones. Do you think it holds up as a political tale? Yes and no. I I think it's more Game of Thrones than Game of Thrones actually ended up being. And it didn't have to resort to having two naked people discussing politics for it to be interesting. But you say that, but one of the things about it is that speech at the beginning that Peter O'Toole gives, where he says about everybody he slept with and he throws in, well, and a couple of little Little boys boys. at the end. And I'm thinking... Oh, no, we wouldn't have got that these days. Yeah, I'm thinking that's really shocking. And then later on, Catherine Hepburn says, you know, oh, he'd share his bed with sheep. Well, he's done that. And you're thinking, (laughs) what? (laughs) It had a lot of the trappings of Game of Thrones without the showing the sex and the violence. There were parts of it that were uncomfortable, like when Eleanor's telling him that she slept with her with uh, his father, yeah. and yeah, well, that and was, all that that was good. Yes, the way that O'Toole and Hepburn, you know, you felt like there was so much history between them. Yes, from the mm. moment they start speaking, you have the sense that they actually, you know, did have this you know, twenty years of marriage or 20, thirty years of marriage between them. And that they hate each other. <laughs> and yeah, and as the boat's arriving, he's bellowing at her, and she's bellowing back as if yes, they uh, they genuinely do know each other. And it's a, there's a familiarity there, isn't there? Based on contempt, maybe, yeah. but there yeah. is a f- contempt and an underlying love. It's like a, it's it's a yeah, the, one of those weird a psychotic romance. They still sort of, in a way, love each other, or at least attracted to each other, drawn to each other like magnets, even if they hate each other. Well, I took a slightly different tact on that. I thought these two people are the two most powerful people in Europe. They're going to control the destiny of Europe for the next 100 years, effectively. And I thought their two central performances, I thought it was just they were so powerful and they each wanted different things and they wanted different children to inherit the kingdom. That theirs was a huge... It was a clash of titans, really. Yeah, but But he had the ultimate power in that he could send her off to a nunnery and lock her up. Yeah. And that dynamic, she was trying to break that constantly. So their central performances, and I know I didn't like the film, but I would have liked it as a play because of that interaction between those people. And everybody else around them I saw as very weak and grabbing and needy. But all of that came about because of an event that happened before the film started. Mm -hmm. The son they both agreed on would take over had died. Yes. This is the Game of Thrones bit now, where each manipulating to get their second favourite in. And by the way, I am really annoyed that the one called Jeffrey was treated the worst. (laughs) (laughs) this film's now 50 it's over 50 years old now do you think it loses anything technically in direction editing or even cinematography and i'll just throw in i listened to the commentary track 
which Anthony Harvey did in 2000. And he complains about the amount of zoom shots. And to be honest, uh, that frustrated me because it's very much of the period. I don't remember too many zoom shots. Again, it's nothing as bad as Chinese cinema or Planet of the Apes. So um, I thought the cinematography, for the most part, was excellent. Yeah, Jeffrey Unsworth. Uh, that really, really holds up. Yeah. Um, it's called Jeffrey. You like the cinematography? Direction and editing? I, for what it was, I thought it was good. I thought the direction was fine for the scenes. I, I like the fact that the performances are able to actually you know, be shown in a take without changing camera angles every two seconds. Yeah, again, he says on the commentary track about that, he likes to keep the camera as static as possible and only moved it. He did a number of dolly shots, but kept those to a minimum, which again brings out the staginess. The staginess of, of the it, piece. yes, exactly, yeah. With modern cinema, we know we're so used, I'm so used to seeing dialogue. And, you know, in one conversation, it's a two-minute scene, there's just a dozen camera cuts. And so you don't necessarily always feel like the characters are inhabiting the same space or even inhabiting the same performance that they're giving. And that's something I appreciate in this. That's interesting, the Michael Bay school of let's cut it and go. I mean, somebody like Tarantino goes back to the older techniques. He will keep a camera on. Again, he'll do dolly shots, but he's not fast cutting. He lets the scenes build. Neil, anything on technical? We can't really judge it by today's standards when yes, we, we can, can put the Lion King out and of a, of a stop-motion thing of, of so perfect. How the hell have you gone from the Lion in Winter to the Lion King? <laughs> Lion! Like, well, okay. <laughs> follow, follow the words. Follow the words. I was trying to think Lion of something. King, well, King, Henry King, the King, yeah. King, Canute. Yes. Sorry, Elijah, you're way ahead of me on this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And if you do anything with winter in it now, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Winter's Winter's Bone. Winter's Bone. Winter's Bone, great film. So let's chat about performances then. Oh, God, no. I like most of the performances. Uh, Hepburn. But the one that got me was Hopkins. And in fact, I thought he was dubbed to start off with. He was projecting (laughs) his voice so much. I agree. Anthony, you're not on stage, mate. Calm it down. But I think all the others, I thought, you know, watching it again, Dalton, Considering how young he was, I thought it was brilliant. O'Toole was great. Hepburn stole the film and won the Oscar. Yeah, more on that shortly. Knowing where Hopkins went to with his acting, I thought this was rather bizarre. Uh, when it comes to Hopkins, I can see what you guys are saying. I think his best performance is the moment where the French king Philip is telling Henry that you know about their relations. Yeah. And he comes out and he's like, no, it wasn't like that. And you can see like the betrayal. His performance, I thought, was excellent in that. I watched three O'Toole films in a week. I watched Line in Winter. I watched Beckett. And then I watched um, Lawrence of Arabia. And at each point, you know, he's got uh, differing uh, amounts of facial hair. So in Line in Winter, full beard, Beckett, goatee, Lawrence of Arabia, clean shaven. And uh, it was interesting seeing the disparity between his Beckett performance as the same character and then his line in the winter performance. Are they supposed to be a sort of pair? I've never seen Beckett, I've got to be honest. Haven't you? No, I've never seen it. It's Richard Burton in there as well, isn't it? There's something about the period films from that era that they weren't afraid to make their characters a little bit more on the... Uh, I don't know. on the Like like what you were saying about the whole thing, you know, I've been with little boys, and there's that... There's that aura of authenticity in the, to yeah. the period with the people in power and things like that that we don't really get a lot 
people tend to avoid that part of the history. Let's talk about this historical context. I mean, some of it is correct, some isn't. I mean, 1183, there was no winter court. There's no Christmas court. Um, certainly no Christmas trees. No Christmas trees. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah Christmas tree and presents. Yeah. Yeah. Now, 1842 was the first Christmas tree. Is it? it was yep. indeed. You are an expert on Christmas. I am an expert on this sort of Christmas and particularly my favourite book of all time, A Christmas Carol. Cool. You've gone from a lion in winter to a Christmas carol. Don't <laughs> criticise me. Yeah, but at least I did it logically through Christmas trees. <laughs> Christmas carol came out in 1842, first Christmas tree in Britain, and the first Christmas card for 1842 in the UK. That's where it all comes from. Up near a Christmas, we're going to do a Christmas carol. That'll be good. That'll the be Alistair good, yeah. Sim version, Versions. 1951. Oh, oh, I, like, I like the Muppet one. Yeah, the Muppet um, one's awesome. That idea is just shelved down the toilet with this on the cutting room floor. Jim Carrey's version, actually. Yeah. I think that one's yeah. excellent. Yeah, it's a worthy inclusion. Maybe we could just have a discussion on which version we prefer. Yes. Yeah. Well, no, no, the first half of the No, only because Jeff organises it and no, we'll only talk about one of them. Yeah, the 1951 Alistair Sim version. There you go. <laughs> um, right. Dictatorial. Okay. Yeah. You should be Pope. Or yeah. King. King. Um, <laughs> King Jeff. So historical accuracy, Elijah, did it bother you that it missed up on a few things? Obviously Christmas trees and... The fact there was no winter court in 1183. It stayed true to the history of the characters, what had been happening in that period for them. I mean, that was all pretty much accurate. So the rest of it didn't really bother me. It's not like, you know, they're wearing full plate armor in the middle of a battle or anything like that. Something that would have, you know, been very, very obvious. The weapons were more or less looked accurate to the time period. As a, as a framing device, it really works. And it does set you inside the history with real historical characters who act like you can imagine they would have acted, who talk about the things that they did. And I, th- I thought that was uh, that was excellent. So the script is by James Goldman, who also did one of the best ever versions of Robin Hood, Robin and Marion with Sean Connery. But on this, I thought there were some great one-liners in the script. Did any of those stay with you, Elijah? I've slept since then. No, it's okay. <laughs> well, I'll throw mine in then. Um, it's when Catherine Hepburn says, well, every family has its ups and downs. <laughs> <laughs> but there was one that I could remember at, when John goes, a knife, a knife, he's got a knife. <laughs> and uh, Eleanor goes, of course he has a knife. He's always got a knife. We all have knives. It's 1183 and we're barbarians. Oh, that was a good line. That was great. There are some terrific lines in here. Let's go to what I always like to talk about, the music. Now, John Barry was involved with the score throughout and any incidental music where people are singing, he worked with them during that production. He got on extremely well with Anthony Harvey and where he could always scored his films. He did a film after this called They Might Be Giants with George C. Scott where he thought he was Sherlock Holmes, which is fantastic, great music score. But this film, for which he won the Oscar, was just brilliant. You, You wouldn't have thought... It's the guy that writes the Bond music no. doing this. No. no, not at all. There's no hint of the jazziness that kind of, yeah, the, the Bond style is nowhere in this. It's just... But no, that's, that's a fair point. You felt it was of the period. You know, even yeah. the incidental music from the main titles when you've got those statues and this yeah. booming choral unsettling music coming in through to the quieter moments, I, I just thought Barry... I, I thought fun. I thought the music was was excellent. I loved the piece where she was coming down the river yeah. at the beginning, and that mm-hmm. beautiful piece of music, and it just drifts. And then the minute she touches the bank, 
it all changes and you think, uh-uh, she's now in his world, so the music changes and it just reinforced, did what proper music in a film should do. It doesn't distract you, it just reinforces what you're seeing on screen. Yeah, and it, it it impacts what you're seeing on screen. You get yes. the the theme in the the opening with all the gargoyles and the the stone on the wall. You know, that's very much that is the king's song. Yeah, yeah. It's very strong, very brutal, and then the queen's is very very light, very very beautiful, and then you get that kind of clash of the two. So you've got that strong music opening, and that reflects the king. And the music does change as it goes on. It becomes more choral, quieter. And, of course, as the film goes on, the king's emotional strength is stripped away from him because at one point he realises all his sons would stab him in the back as soon as look at him. So, Elijah, there is a 2003 version of this film, made for American TV, I believe, starring Patrick Stewart and Glenn Close. Have you seen it? And if not, would you watch it? I have not seen it, and um, while Glenn Close and Patrick Stewart are incredible, I don't, I don't really have an interest. Okay, Graham, would you watch it? I'd probably watch it, yeah, because I'd like to see the same thing done cinematically without it being a film it's made stage for play. TV. There's uh, your first warning. Yeah, it, well, you give it a go. Uh, yeah. The story. See, the problem is the story and the intrigue and clash of personalities is really, really interesting. It's just badly directed i thought and you know too stagey for a modern audience and certainly for me it just felt like i was watching a stage play and some of the acting and certainly the action scenes were crap so that's our thoughts on the lion in winter there's graham and neil hiding behind the curtain plotting (laughs) about what they don't like while elijah (laughs) and i both really enjoyed it But it's not only what we think, it's revisiting the classics. What do you think? If you've seen it recently, give us a shout. Let us know. Which side are you on? Behind the curtain or on the throne? (laughs) Speak to you later. Bye. Thanks, Elijah, for another fascinating discussion. Although I stand by my comments, I don't think this film has aged that well. That said, I do enjoy these discussions and getting a chance to see films I haven't seen in years. As for next month, Sam Pope joins us to talk about all things Apocalypse Now. An interview with young film composer Daniel Gadd A discussion with Phil Foster about Ryan Gosling. Bet you can't wait, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Plenty of reviews and more from Lucy and Steve Wright. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. So it only remains for us to say... Jeff, I take it all back. After that discussion with Elijah, I do not see you as a king. You're more of a Prince John. Cheers, Neil. In contrast, you remind me of a more modern member of the royal family. Don't, no. Pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> don't, don't. Full of good go ideas, there. but actually a bit of a hippie. Oh, that's all right. I don't mind that. Time one. to end this before I have to edit out any libelous comments. And to everyone else, thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening and, and goodbye. goodbye. That's a wrap. Excellent. Well done.
make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website, attheflicks.uk. Thanks for listening.